Welcome to According to Flint, the innovative podcast reaching beyond the Western demographic with stories, humor, and interviews. Now, here's your host, Flint Rasmussen. Well, after weeks of anticipation, we're happy to bring you the very first episode of A Little Bit of Life According to Flint, and who better to kick off this podcast, a little series we're doing, than the nine-time world champ himself, the king of the rodeo cowboys, PBR founder, we could go on and on. But most of all, of all the things he's done in his career, he recognizes that being the first guest on the podcast, According to Flint, is probably the highlight of his career, the one and only Mr. Ty Murray. This is a big, this is a big moment for you, Ty. I can tell. Well, I'm just, yeah, I'm flattered that you chose me, Flint. You're <laughs> kind of the, you've kind of become the Jay Leno of the of the rodeo world, and I feel honored. You know, I I tell young when people ask me what I did as a kid and influences, I'll tell them that I used to sneak down the stairs and watch Johnny Carson around through the banister of the staircase when I couldn't sleep. And most people that I'm associated with are too young to know who Johnny Carson was. <laughs> Doesn't mean anything to him. Um, you know, I was thinking when, when we set this up through my rodeo career and I'm thinking, when did I first meet Ty? And I'm not going to go with when I first met you, but the first time I saw you, I had just finished college. I was student teaching. I student taught in the fall of 1990 and my parents took me to Vegas to the NFR. And I was so excited. Here was Ty Murray. And I think the first performance we went to, and you maybe remember this, a horse rolled on you or got down in the chute on you and you were out the rest of the week. Am I right? Was it the bareback ride and saddlebronc? Well, it was ride? the ninth round. It was a saddlebronc in the ninth round. And okay. right when I called for him, he flipped upside down on me and smashed my knee and took me out the 10th round. Yeah, I think, uh, I think what we did was went the last two nights. And here I was, so excited to see Ty Murray, and you got hurt. So I'd, if there's some kind of refund you could give me. You're still looking for it? <laughs> yeah. But that was like, <laughs> go ahead. I think over the, over the course of our careers, you only got to watch me ride maybe about a million times, right? Um, a minute. Yeah, a, a few. <laughs> a few. But, they, you know, you look at 1990. I was not even a blip on the screen. I mean, I was doing some amateur rodeos in Montana and always wanted to see the NFR. It was something we watched on TV as kids. And my parents had never been, I had never been. And that was kind of for you. I look at where that falls in your career. That was, you were young, healthy. I mean, you look back on that time, that was kind of a, a happy go lucky glory time or rodeo probably for you, wasn't it right around the early nineties? Well, yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and, you know, at that time of my life, rodeo was the only thing there was, as far as I was concerned that, you know, nothing else mattered. And, and, you know, that's also where you're at that age where you're indestructible, you think you're indestructible. And, you know, I can remember guys like Larry Mahan and Jim Shoulders saying, well, you know, Ty can go as far as he wants if he doesn't get hurt. And I always used to, it offended me. I took it personal. You know, I'd say, why do they think I'm going to get hurt? 
you know, and I, I didn't realize that I was this 130 pound kid doing three events and I was a candle in the wind out there, you know, and, and so now I, I have more of an understanding of what, of what they meant. Cause when I see a, a young guy coming up that has a lot of talent, that's the first thing I think of is man, if he, if he can just be good enough and, and, and sharp enough and, 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 and really aware enough all the time and not get hurt, then he's going to rewrite the, the record books, you know. Isn't that funny, though? How many guys have we seen come along now? Well, first in rodeo, but I think it's more prevalent now that you and I spend more time at PBR competitions that are on TV, so it's more visible. I think rodeo, yeah. you could slide by with things. Now everybody's watching, and I mean, you can list. We could go back in history. You ever go back and look at old PBR videos, and you go, Man, he was good. What happened to him? Sure enough, that's just that variable we always have to figure in in this sport. Yeah, and and you know it's something that I have such a full understanding of. You know that you know when I when I when I do when I am on TV, you have to remind people and even remember yourself that there's not a sport more dangerous than this. There's not. I, you know, I'll have that debate with anyone and. And that's what this sport is. You know, it's learning how to live in that environment is a huge test. Take away being good at it. Mm -hmm. You know, so, so to be really good at it and have an awareness and, and, and be able to be focused and fluid in that kind of an environment, <clears throat> that's what makes this sport. You know, um, physically or mechanically, it's difficult, but it's no more difficult than any other sport. It's, 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 it's on par with, you know, I always say in any sport, there's five basic things you got to do. And if you can do those five basic things really good, you're going to be pretty good at that sport. To me, where our sport goes to another level is you have the same pressures of winning and losing or championships or money mm -hmm. as all other sports. But this sport is on a, is a, on a whole other plateau because the chance of dying is real every time. So mentally just to be able to live in that space and go for it when it's the hardest to go for it. Um, that's something that to me, that's what separates the men from the boys, the guys that you can see that learn to hit the gas when everybody's wanting to take their foot off the gas. That's usually, that's usually what causes the separation. And it's a very hard thing to do. And, and that, you know, it's not by accident that I had a family late and a wife late mm -hmm. because I couldn't go to the world's most dangerous job every day and put my foot on the gas when every fiber of my soul was telling me to take it off. If I had a wife and baby at home waiting on me. Mm. Um, it, is it harder for guys? We, we see young guys and, and I know a discussion we have in our locker room with guys uh, with uh, the bullfighters. Cause they, they're right up there close. And the thing they bring up is not so much guys, in early in their career worrying about injuries but coming back from an injury and i have asked so many bull riders this question and bareback riders and saddle bronc riders in interviewing them and i'll ask you that what's harder to come back from an injury and i think i know the answer is it the physical you tear a groin you 
you get a concussion, you tear up your shoulder. Is it harder to come back physically or is it harder to come back up here mentally to uh, like you say, put your foot on the gas? I would think it's mental. And for the most part, guys will say that. Yeah. So for me, for me, it wasn't really the mental side of now I'm scared Mm -hmm. because this stuff was scary to me all the time. (laughs) And I'm being, I'm, I'm being, I'm being as serious as I can be and, and as honest as I can be. It was, it's always scary. That's what this sport is. And, and bareback riding is more scary than bronc riding and bull riding is more scary than bareback riding. But all three of the events, if, if they don't have a fear factor, if, you, if you're somebody that doesn't have a fear factor in those three events, then you're a, you're a certain kind of dude, you know? So, so I always had a, I always had a, a huge, amount of respect for the danger that's involved in this game. The hardest thing for me coming back from injuries, especially when you have an injury that takes you out for like a year, six months or nine months, which I had both was your, your bone or ligament or whatever it is heals way before your mind understands and trusts it. So when you babied something for six months, even though it's healed and feels great, your brain still wants you to baby it. Mm. And so I used to do exercises that would show my brain that it was okay. And, and, you know, like they used to have me like they'd set up cones and have me, you know, dart back and forth, like after a knee surgery. Mm -hmm. And, and so if you could do that enough to where your brain started trusting that knee again, because when you, when you hobble around on a bad knee for nine months, your brain is still, you got to protect it. You've got to take care of it. So that was kind of the hardest part for me was just, was just saying, okay, this works again. I can use it again the way I always did. I don't have to protect it and, and go on about it. And when I say scary, I'm not talking about, Oh, I'm, you know, I'm (laughs) scared to do this. Not in that way but I know what the consequences are every time I get in there. I know what the consequences can be. Hmm. And so for me, that was kind of what fueled me in this sport. I know that sounds funny to some people, but, but taking something that's that dangerous, taking it where the plateau gets raised to places that most, most athletes don't know. Even if you take car racing, you're still the one with your foot on the gas or break or whatever. And so you're deciding at the end of the day, you're still deciding what level it's going to most of the time where in riding bulls or bucking horses, they got, they're the one with the throttles. So, so they're kind of deciding what level it's going to go to. And then it's up to you to have the focus and mental toughness to say, I'm ready right now. Where are we, how far are we going? And, and to me, that's kind of the essence of what the sport is. So, you know, I see guys sometimes that say, I'm going to nod and I'm going to kind of fill out where this is going. (laughs) Those guys aren't going to, those guys aren't going to be the champ. I can promise you. Right. When you look at a JB Mooney or you look at a Jose Vitor Leme, or you look at a Jess Lockwood, they're right there saying, you take it to the level I'm going with you right now. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and that's all mental. And, 
And I think that's where championship. I think that's a big part of where championships are won or lost. In the the literal, taking the meaning of what you just said in the literal meaning of it, I think that translates, and I think you've talked about this, guys who take a long time in the shoot and they rattle around making sure everything's right. To me, when I'm watching from my my standpoint where I am, I'm thinking, not going to happen. We've seen it. Silvano Alves, he rides really good when he doesn't mess around the shoot, when he stops and he waits. That that's kind of goes to what you're talking about. All right, let's go. A J.B. Mooney who's two feet back of his rope and nods as he's sliding up. He's ready to go all the time. Is that a, is that liter, a literal kind of translation of what you're saying? I think, I think that's a good indicator, but I think all guys' brains work differently. And there's, there's, there's guys, there's guys that have been champions that are everything and all of the above, but not when the gate opens, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. So you, you've got to either be able to turn it on or not. And you've got to be able to say, wherever this goes, I'm ready to go. You know, like when I see guys that maybe get helicoptered into a place that's nobody's ever went down on skis and it's a cliff, Mm -hmm. you know, rock face with some snow. (laughs) Those are guys that it feels like that's similar to what we do and what I'm talking about. Because when they tip off of there, it's not a groomed trail that they understand what's ahead. And there's a sign saying, hey, this is a blue diamond. You know, they, they are a blue square. You know, uh, they tip black, off. They black, tip yeah. Off <laughs> yeah. And the mountain, the mountain ha- has the throttle. And oh. so they've got to, you know, they've got to just deal with what comes up along the way. And, and that's a lot how our sport is. Interesting. So, you know, like, well, it's funny because when you start talking about the mental aspect of this sport, the mechanics are the mechanics. You know, it doesn't matter if it's you or if it's me or what, but the mental aspect of this sport to me is tricky to teach or coach, or I think that's the mark of a good coach because what it takes to get the best out of somebody is going to be different for me than it is for you, or, or it might be the same, but you know, there's, there's, there's different things that can get guys to that right place. And and whatever it is, they've got to find it. You know, they've, they've got to be able to find what it is that makes them say, I'm ready. Let's go. I have the confidence. I, you know, I'm prepared. To me, like if I could be in good shape and prepared, that's when I was ready. Your confidence goes down when you're maybe not in the shape you should be right. in or practice wise, you're not as prepared as you should be. That's where. Uh, that's where it gets bad. You So you've got to figure out confidence from somewhere. Good stuff. Um, curious, because I've said this a lot, and through your career, to watch you, I mean, we could talk about the usual thing of you were going to rodeos, three rodeos, four rodeos a weekend, doing three rough stock events, and to see people do it now, it, I can't imagine seeing somebody do it now. But what really, yes, you said... Bronc riding was scary. Bareback riding was scarier and bull riding was scarier than both of them. But I've always said, I've thought watching bareback riding, and that was always my favorite. My, my two favorite events to watch at the NFR are the bulldogging and the bareback riding. <laughs> always wanted to be a bareback rider, but I was scared. <laughs> so is bareback riding tougher on the body overall, do you think, than bull riding Absolutely. with what it does? 
it's physically demanding almost every time. Yeah. You know, even when you're on a good horse making a good ride, it can still be very physically demanding. Bull riding can be hard on you when you don't do it right, but but when you do it right, it's it's literally the coolest thing in the world because you're taking something that's so difficult and so scary and making it look effortless and like nothing. And that, you know, that's that's really a big part of the essence of it is, you know, it doesn't beat you up every time, but it can beat you up bad when you when you make mistakes. And bareback riding is it, it's pretty physically demanding regardless, unless, yeah. you know, and if you have something sore, it's definitely physically demanding every time. Like if your elbow's bothering you, even on a really nice horse and you're making a really great ride, you're going to feel that elbow. Um, just because bareback riding kind of goes the, against the nature of everything that has to do with riding. Yes. There's no, you know, it, it, you're, you're, you're fighting nature in, in bareback riding where in bronc riding and bull riding, you are trying to have counter movement that smooths things out. Hmm. And, and so, uh, speaking of, you know, you say it goes counter to everything riding. I, I remember talking to Casey field, world champion bareback rider who I thought for quite a few years until he had some injuries and he's still world-class. I always thought he was a gear. I always said he's a gear ahead of everyone else in the bareback. Yeah. And I talked to him about it one time and he said, he thinks, you know, he grew up, his dad, Louie was a great cowboy in every sense of the word, a cowboy. Yeah. We've talked about Louie field and Casey always told me he thought he did good in the bareback riding. And I know horses are a passion of yours and how horses, everything with horses. He always said, I'm better than everyone because I'm a horseman. I grew up from a kid. I can read when they're going to switch leads, what their yeah. shoulders are doing. And he always thought that was an advantage. Um, I would think bareback riding, but mostly bronc riding, the better horseman you are. I remember when I wanted to be a bareback rider and my older brother, who was a better cowboy than I said, he said, you can't be a bareback rider. You can't even ride a damn horse, you know? And I thought, what does that have to do? That's an interesting point by Casey though. Well, I think things that help you. Yeah. You know, like knowing how to feel what's coming is obviously a big deal, but it also really helps you to understand a horse's nature when you get in the chute. You know, you'll watch one that is scared in there and you get a guy in there that's scared because he's scared, then that's putting gas on a fire, you know? So when you can get down in there and they feel a relaxation from you, it translates, you know, it transfers right down into the horse. And, and that's, you know, that's another benefit of, of being able to understand a horse and how their nature That's works. every horse. That's, I mean, how often do ladies work their barrel racing horse at home and that sucker is as could be in the parade. And when they get ready to go in that gate, that horse won't go in the gate because their heart rates up and they're tense. And those it's amazing what horses can feel, isn't it? Like they can feel your heart rate almost. Absolutely. They feel your thoughts. Absolutely. And, and a, a big part, you know, a big part of horses not performing the way that they could is they are, and they're being at, you know, they're, they're getting, they're getting drilled a monkey trick into them in a lot of sport type events. Mm -hmm. So there's not, there's not true communication. It's more of a monkey trick that you've drilled into them a lot huh. and they have to fill in a lot of blanks. Huh. And 
you know, what I have found through horsemanship is the more when you can provide a steady stream of information to the horse, 100% of the time, a subtle steady stream of information. And it takes though it takes the guesswork out of it. It takes the anxiety out of it. And they're more like a little kid that's holding on to your belt loop at the supermarket. They don't really have a care. They're just following along. And, and that's, you know, that's where people's problems come in is at home. They've done it a thousand times in that environment, in that arena. And, that, and there's no, they don't have any anxiety when their cortisol gets raised. And they're like, okay, I drive part of the time. That makes me nervous. I got to fill in this blank. You know, I was raised where, well, that horse stopped a little short before you were going to throw it. He cheated you. Well, he didn't cheat you. Mm -hmm. He guessed wrong. And, and so for me, you know, learning how to, whether I'm on my horse or whether I'm on the ground or whether I'm a hundred yards from him, we have a line of communication that he understands. And when you can provide them that information subtly and steadily, they always have the information. They know direction. They know cadence. They know they have that feel. When you ask something, they feel you say yes at every turn. That's when that's when you develop words together through body language. And they just follow along They're They're you know, they're a very willing animal. Um, but when you pull on their mouth all the time and kick them in the guts and, and do all that, you know, they're, they're not getting a, f- yeah. a very fair deal and they're having to fill in a lot of bad blanks and they're having to deal with a lot of anxiety. So it goes back to you talking about they can perceive your thoughts. They can perceive when you watch somebody go out there and go, I got this halter and I'm going to put it on your head. Two hours later, they're still chasing that horse or trying to get him to- they're trying to trick him with a, a, a bucket of grain or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Where I go out there, I I don't I don't care about putting the, the halter on that horse's head. What I care about is you coming to me. And it's a little more difficult to go where you think you ought to go, and it's easy to come to me. And when you can start to figure out how to set up the the two choices, and the behavior that you're wanting is always when you learn how to set it up where the behavior that you want is always the easiest choice. That's the one they pick every time. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. So it's, you know, I've been, I've been educating myself on this for, I've been educating myself on this hard for 25 years mm-hmm. and it's, it's very hard and you, you've got to work at it and it's, it's, it's incredibly hard, but it's, you know, I was helping a kid all morning with a colt and it went from, I'll show you something. You'll get a kick out of this. So he comes, <laughs> this, kid, this kid comes to me and he's, and he's a, he's a friend of mine. He's a good kid. He comes to me and he says, I've got this. He's starting Colts is what he's doing. And yeah. he, goes, he goes, I got this one. He goes, it's a disaster. And he was raised the same way I was raised. You out cowboy him, you out tough him. You, you get that saddle on him. You, you know, you, so the picture on the left is, You'll, well, you'll know the picture of him saddling him the first time. And then I got a picture of him two seconds after we saddled him with some understanding. <laughs> so he's, uh, so the one I'm looking at where he's blowing up, how far apart are, what's the time on these pictures? 
Uh, three days, maybe. I mean, uh, three days just because he didn't get over here for three days. But that uh, was the that was probably three so days apart. And that's when you just you know you 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 have a you have a cult and you slip around and you steal everything and you sneak and you steal this and you steal that and then you put the saddle on. And then, you know, you know, the horse was on his own because this kid's filming. You know? oh, yeah, so yeah, good horse, point. This horse is getting zero information yeah. and, and he knows that. And he, you know, he thought he was going to die and he did everything he could <laughs> to live through it. Uh, do you have any old bucking horses on your place right now? I know I you got a passion no, for that. I don't have any left. I started retiring uh, famous bucking horses probably about 27 years ago. Mm-hmm. And I've retired a dozen great ones here on the ranch. And, you know, I just kick them out and they got the run of the place. And I take care of them if they need it. You know, if their teeth need something or their feet need something or, you know, I'll worm them once a year. Uh, but for the most part, I just try to let them just have a good retirement. You know, that's, it's something I enjoy just having them out there and watching them. And they're, you know, they're all buried along the Bosky river runs through the middle of this ranch. And I got them, I got them a cemetery there along the banks of that river. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, it was just a, you know, really, it was just a really fun hobby because the, all them horses, they got, they've been around, you know, they've, yep. they've been all over, they've been to the NFR a bunch of times and everywhere in between. And, and, uh, I've had ones that were dog gentle that would try to follow me into the saddle house and want you to brush them. And I've had other <laughs> ones that will take the cookie and then try to kick you. you know, so, <laughs> so when I, just, I just, what, let them all be. When, when I decide to retire, can I kind of just come and have the run of the place and you'll take care of my teeth and my feet and whatever, <laughs> give me a cookie once in a while. And that'd be, uh, we got a deal you, there. Are you getting close to that or are you going to hang in there a while? Uh, I, well, I'll tell you this. I think this year bought me another year. I think <laughs> this, I got good rest. I got good rest this year. So I think I'm good. Um, change gears a little bit here because I'm passionate about this topic in debating, not so much debating people, but a little bit being the antagonist of it. I think Cowboys are in a tough spot. You and I have talked about money in this sport and what you made and what your endorsement type things were. I think Cowboys are in a tough spot where people say all the time, rodeo Cowboys should make more money. But then when rodeo Cowboys make more money, oh, now they're going to act like all the other athletes or now they're spoiled or they're a sellout. I think Cowboys fall in a real tough spot in between where people would like to see cowboys make more money, but then for some reason it, it makes them not cowboys anymore. Uh, you know, you run into the sponsorship deal. Well, now they're making all this money to show up. Now they don't try as hard, which I think is BS. I think winners win no matter what, but they are cowboys. It's a tough spot to be in for our culture and the way we were brought up. You know, my thoughts are always that I, I don't feel that way personally. I don't feel if, if, a, if a fighter say there's a huge fight, you know, pick, pick whoever two guys there is and there's a huge fight and it generates a billion dollars. Mm-hmm. It's not my place to say they're they're getting paid too much. If anything, sometimes I think 
they might not even be getting as much as they, you know, as, as much as what's fair for how much they've generated. Mm -hmm. But what I don't like is when you take two fighters and say, we're going to pay you both 50 million. Right. I would rather the hunt, I would rather the winner get a hundred million. And to me, that's the essence of sport. You know, you're going to see a different fight if the winner gets a hundred million, as opposed to both of them getting 50 million, win, lose or draw. And so in, in the decisions that I've been involved in with the PBR, it's always, we want to try to get these guys to make in as much as we can, but they got to go earn it. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that's, you know, I don't, I don't want to watch a athlete that's guaranteed the day he gets out of college, $250 million and watch him, you know, and I agree that winners win, but I would rather see him go out there and make it every day. If you go out and throw five interceptions, you know, it, it doesn't really matter. Your 250 million is coming in just the same. So I just feel like for the integrity of sport to be intact, just like everyone else in the world, you got to go earn it every day for the most part. You know, you, you want me you to don't, answer, you don't want me to answer your phone for you or you yeah, <laughs> um, who was it? Was it anybody important? Who just called you? It was a guy at the, it was a guy at the uh, tractor dealership here in town. Oh, okay. I, I, <laughs> I got a piece of equipment getting worked on. Um, I'll continue what you said. Um, it's, I think I get a lot of fans saying bull riders should make more money because they're doing something very dangerous, but it comes back to what you said. This what, um, income is related to what you generate and a demand. So until the fan base and the TV deals are generating hundreds of millions of dollars, it is not, you shouldn't get paid more because you choose to do something dangerous. There has right. to be something that you're generating. Tell me this, why is it, we've talked about what you made on endorsement sponsorship stuff. Why 25 years ago, did you make a certain amount in sponsorships and nobody's making that much in endorsement money now in the rodeo world? You made more than anybody's making now. So what has changed? Well, Was it, were you a groundbreaker in that? Did you hold out? Did you demand it? What did you do right? I guess is the question. So, you know, so I don't know. I think, it, I think it's a couple of things that at that time, at that time and place, it was all rodeo. You know, this is, you know, I started, I won my first world championship in 1989. The PBR didn't even start till 1994 and that was in its infancy. Yeah. So at that time, that was the biggest part that we had. And what I was doing, you know, I was doing the three sexiest events. Yeah. I, I mean, really like yeah, when you're looking completely. at it from a, from a fan standpoint or a sponsor standpoint, the bucking, you know, the, the bucking events are, are they're, they're a little more attractive. Possibly. I think more people can, can be excited about them or enthralled by them where they don't understand what it takes to be Trevor Brazil. Good. They, you know, and a, and a lot of times they don't understand what it takes to be good in, in riding a bull either, but there's an excitement and a wow factor there. So I think that's part of it. I think the fact that I was doing it in three events, was part of it. I think the fact that I was winning all around every year was a part of it. And the fact that I did say no 
a lot was a big part of it. And I, and, and that's not cause I'm some genius. I had help along the way, you know, Larry Mahan took me under his wing when I was 13 years old and I went and lived with him for a summer and, and he, he always was checking in on me. And, and when I went and lived with him, he, well, really in our lifetime, he's never taught me one thing about riding. He's never said one word about anything about riding, but he did bring me in when I was 13 and he put me in situations that taught me how to deal with people. He put me in situations where, you know, he'd be doing an interview and he'd say, this kid right here's who you ought to talk to, you know, and the reporter turns to me and I'm sitting there going, oh, you know, and so, <laughs> so he started showing me that it was important to, you know, he taught me when somebody asks you about that bull ride, you know, everybody says, oh, I kept my hand shut. It worked out good. Well, that that gives nobody anything. And, and you know, Larry taught me, he said, these people don't know. Everybody listening has no idea what it's like to even set on a bull. It's so it's important for you to explain what it's like. Explain what you experienced. Explain. Be truthful about it. Tell them about it. And, and so... And when I was that age, I was, everything was cowboy. If it didn't have to do with being a cowboy, I didn't care. And so to have him come in and help me at that time of my life and throughout my career, that was big stuff, you know? And he told me, he said, look, when you start winning, everybody's going to give you a free pair of boots. Everybody's going to give you all the shirts you can wear or whatever it is, you know? He goes, if it doesn't, if it doesn't, if you don't feel like it changes your life, I wouldn't do it. And that was advice that made a huge difference to me. Now, a lot of things have to fall into place for that to work. And winning is what has yeah, to fall into that, place. And, yeah. Yeah. And so for me, you know, it, it was, I wanted, you know, I, I went, I went at the first year and I had people coming at me from every direction. They'd be like, hey, we'll give you all the shirts you want or, or the boot, you know, or whatever. And I would keep saying no. I'd say, no, that, that's okay. Well, then I'd win again. Well, the next time they'd come, there was a better offer. And I'd say no again. And, I, and then I'd win again. Or I'd win more. I'd keep winning. And they, would, and they would keep coming back until I felt like it was something first that I believed in. And, and number two, something that would, would help to change my life because I, Hey, it was no, it was no, I wasn't the kid that thought, Hey, you become a world champion and all your, all, everything's answered and you're rich. I, I I'm a fifth generation cowboy. I, you know, I've been around cowboys and world champion cowboys and, and stuff since I was a little kid. So it was no, I didn't have stars in my eyes that said, you're going to win a world championship and then it's easy street. So I knew that I had to make good decisions. I had to take care of my money. I had to put my money in the right places. And, and I, you know, I wasn't the guy that said, Oh, I won this. I'm going to buy an Escalade. Now I won that. I'm going to buy, you know, I'm going to trick out my house with the sound. You know, I, I was never geared towards that. I knew that I needed to save my money and put it in the right place. And ultimately I wanted to own a ranch. I bought this ranch when I was 25. Huh. How big is it? How big's your ranch? It's uh, almost 3000 acres. Huh? Yeah. It'd be, you know, I look at there's guys that are, doing it right, you know, investing in ranching, you know, I know Jess Lockwood does that, uh, you know, and I don't get too much into I it. I invest in ranching. I invested in land. 
Right. Yeah. Um, like, you know, and, and, and so again, I'm not, I'm not, I'm no rocket scientist, but they're not there, you know, it's supply and demand and they're, I know they're not making any more land. That's what they tell me. <laughs> and and well, it, it's been a good thing for me, but I, but I've definitely had, I've definitely had help along the way. And, and throughout my life, you know, really, I think, you know, I worked at it hard. I loved it. I had the right body for it. I had the right family for it. I had the right upbringing, but there was also a lot of luck. You know, there was, I had a lot of help. I had, I had great parents that supported me and understood what I was going for. I had guys like Larry Mahan that understood what I was going for. I got in with the right guys at a young age, traveling with, with Cody Lambert, and Lane Frost and Jim Sharp and Tuff Hedeman that I was exposed to all the right stuff, you know? So, so a lot of it was luck and, and, and learning attitudes and expecting to win and, and all those things, it just seems like at every turn in my life, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of it's been based on decisions, but a lot, some of it's been luck as well. You know, we, we, in this sport, I think go through, uh, you know, JB Mooney's always been confident and people say, I don't like him. He's cocky. Uh, they come, I've had a lot of young guys call me on the phone and say, what do you do for sponsors? How do I get sponsors? I say, for one, you're not wearing a patch on your shirt. You're endorsing a product you believe in. That's part of it. But the first thing I always tell them, and you, you just brought this up in talking kind of to circle back to it. I I tell them right away, be good, be work your ass off and be good. It doesn't do you any good if you're not good. I was given a talk one time at the college national finals and I was, and they were asking me about sponsorship and stuff. And, and I, I was taking some questions and a, and a kid said, well, you know, what's the best way to get a sponsor? And I said, when, mm-hmm. and he said, whenever and I said, I said, no, W I N when. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Whenever it doesn't matter. I, I had yeah. a, I had a friend of mine say, man, I could put a sign on my, trailer they should you know how many people see that sign driving down the road on that trailer why don't they pay me this much and i said because nobody knows who you are we want i want ty murray to tell me what boots to wear i want you know i want jb mooney to tell me what side by side i mean that's what ingrains in people's head it it, it's funny the mentality on that i mean not to beat it down but uh it is interesting when you when you tell i had somebody say man Flynn, I want some tips. You seem to have all these good rodeos. I want to know how you suck up to all these committees and get these good rodeos. I said, I have these good rodeos because I'm better than you. And I mean, he walked away. Well, yeah, I was. I mean, you, know, you know, something that I feel is really important is, you know, I took a lot of flack for having an agent mm-hmm. and I pretty much took flack through it through my whole career. You know, Oh, you're, Oh, you're a big shot. Oh, you need an agent. Oh, we can't talk to you. Well, it wasn't about being a big shot. It was, it was about two things. It was about one. I wanted somebody that was a lot smarter than me handling the deals and the contracts and, and, and all of that stuff that goes into it. But even more importantly than that is it was very important for me to be able to keep my focus on winning and keeping my focus in the arena. And, 
whenever you start doing like a J.B. Mooney or a Jose or a Jess, people start coming, you know, out of the woodwork and, hey, you want to do this deal? You want to do that deal? Well, if you get caught up in all that it takes to manage that and, and do all that, then you're not doing the part that matters. And, and that's what I was saying about like you talking about me and, and what I was able to do from a cor- corporate standpoint, sponsor standpoint. It was because every day my focus was winning. And that to me, that's, that's all of it. You know, like I just had to keep winning. And, and, and as I kept winning, then that part of my business got a lot better. Damn it. I need an agent. I'll tell you. (laughs) Um, Okay. So I'll, I'll try to lighten it up here a little bit. So, Trevor Brazil and I, we're friends. I would say we're friends. And I asked him, we've talked about the timed event rough stock. And I asked him one time, if you were, you could pick a rough stock event, what would it be? And Trevor tried to be a saddle bronc rider, loves saddle yeah. bronc riding. Yeah. And, and I like Trevor and I, he's a cowboy. So if you, if you had to work, you know, in Canada to be the all around cowboy, you got to work both ends of the arena still. Yeah. They have a high point and all around. What's your timed event? You pick one timed event. What, what's well, your time all of them. Yeah, I did all of them through college and, and, and I liked the timed events, but I loved the rough stock events. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if it's got something to do with being a cowboy, I want to be able to do it. And, and I feel like I can rope, you know, I'm not at the level of a Trevor Brazil. I'm not even close, which nobody else is either, but that wasn't, that wasn't where my love was. And, and so through college, you know, I went to the college national finals in all the events and, but I, I kicked butt in the three rough stock events, you know, and, and, and I would, I would win a little bit here and there in either the bulldogging or the, or I head or heel or, or roping calves. But, um, it wasn't ever something that burned in me. I, I liked it. And I wanted to be able to do it and I wanted to be pretty good at it, but it just, it, it wasn't just burning in me every day. Yeah. Um, all right. <clears throat> I, I, I know the time frame of this topic I got to ask you about because I remember you calling me on the phone about a week after I had, had a heart attack mm-hmm. and you, you said some choice words and you said, we're all screwed. We're all going to die. If you had a heart attack, <laughs> we're all going to yeah. die. I had a heart attack uh, at the same time you were on Dancing with the Stars. That's what I remember because I, I had heart attacks at the same time. Really, what's that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was having a heart attack too on that show. Yeah. Well, I remember you said in all your years rodeo, you never your body never felt like that. A matter of fact, you actually said you feel like you've got you got ate by a coyote and crapped over a cliff. Is your exact <laughs> word? Okay. So I get asked all the time. It now that it hasn't been on TV. People come to me, you need to be on Dancing with the Stars. You need to be on Dancing with the Stars. They say, you don't show up at the studio and knock on the back door and say, here I am. And uh, that, speaking of having an agent, that whole process wasn't you going and saying, I think I want to be on Dancing with the Stars. There was a lot went into that, wasn't there? Well, yeah. And a funny story, you know, actually Dancing with the Stars called me the first year. Really? And, and nobody... I, I had, I never heard of any of it, you know, and, and it came across, 
my agent's desk of, Hey, there's a show. And he calls me and he said, Hey, there's a show where they teach you how to ballroom. I didn't even know what ballroom dancing was. I didn't know when I went to the show, I didn't even know what it was. And they said, there's a show where they teach, they take celebrities from different walks of life and they teach you how to ballroom dance. And that's the show. And I was like, yeah, no, thanks. (laughs) And so, you know, a couple years went by and this show blows up and there's 25, when I did it, there was 25 million people a week Mm. watch the show. And, you know, Emmett Smith had done it and some, you know, some big athletes and big and, and, uh, and stuff had done it and it had gotten really big. And so when they came back and asked me again, a couple years later, we knew that it would be, uh, a big opportunity for the PBR in the sport and, and the, the whole cowboy world to be a part of that show. And, and everybody laughs when I tell them it's one of the hardest things I've ever done. Oh, I know. I mean, physically, (laughs) physically, but also just, it's hard. You know, those, those dancers have spent a lifetime being able to do what they do. And they're trying to take us through it in, you know, a a couple of weeks. And, and it was brutal. And, and it's not like, you know, I always tell people, say if it was a golf show, I can fake my way through golf. I know how to hold a club. I know how to swing a club. I suck at it, but I could go do it. Uh Where with this, you've got to practice your face off eight hours a day, or you just go out there and stand there. You know what I mean? Like you can't fake your way through it. And that's what makes, you know, that's part of what makes the show so popular is that there's no you can't mail it in you've got it you've got (laughs) you've got to put in the work and and for a guy like me when when the lady that that cast uh the show when they were signing me up for it we were all on the phone on a conference call and she was telling me about it and i said i need to come back to the ranch every week and she said oh no you're not gonna have time and i said oh yeah i said i gotta come back every week she said okay whatever you want, we'll fly you. you. You, wherever you want to go, we'll fly you. You want to go home, we'll fly you back, whatever. We'll send the dancer with you. Well, the reason she said that is because she knew that you can't, you've got to, and the people that are, have a career going while they're doing the show, it really kills them. Yeah. You know? And, and so the only thing I had was my event in Albuquerque with David. Yeah. And that was the only place that was the only time I left. And my partner came with me and we'd, you know, we'd do the bull riding that night. And we'd practice all day there in Albuquerque at a dance studio. Hmm. And, but, but getting back to my story, when they were signing me up, the lady that, that books it, she said, uh, do you have it? When we were about done with calls, she said, do you have any questions? Cause I never asked a question, I guess, cause I didn't know what to ask. And I didn't even really know ballroom dancing. And she said, <laughs> uh, she said, do you have any questions? And I said, no. And she started laughing. And I said, what are you laughing about? And she says, you have no idea what you just signed up for. Uh, I knew so little about, about ballroom dancing that the first week that we started practicing, learning how to dance for the show, I was doing an interview with People Magazine, and, and they said – this is when Twitter at this time was when Twitter was first, I guess, becoming a thing. And, and she said, uh, do you Twitter? And I said, no, I said, so far, all I've learned is the cha-cha and the quick step. <laughs> I thought, 
I thought Twitter was another. I thought that was one of the kinds of dances that I was doing. Oh, brilliant. Well, yeah, I've told people that you got to understand if I was on Dancing with the Stars, I wouldn't be working here every weekend, you know, doing PBR. You just yeah. can't do it. And, um, Listen, before I let you go, Oakley, uh, your, your little girl, Oakley, um, you're, you're going to pay for that. She's a little tie. She swims like a fish. No fear. Uh, she's around there. Is case around uh, your boy Casey. He he always says, yo, smell you later. Is he around too? You got them both there at the ranch right now. Right now. Uh, we celebrated Casey's birthday is July 11th, but he was with his mom. Mm Mm-hmm. But we celebrated it here at the ranch yesterday and we had a big party for him and we had probably, you know, a bunch of his little friends over here and had Good. a pool party and had a great time. Well, tell, uh, tell your wife Paige and Oakley and Kate, tell Case, tell Case I'll smell him later. Yeah, I'll, I'll do it. Yeah. <laughs> so. yeah. I'll tell you, they, they, uh, they're a lot of fun and they're polar opposite. And, yeah. and I feel so lucky to have a boy and a girl. And Case says, Dad's risk level is here and my risk level is down. <laughs> and Oakley, Oakley is, I, my hair's already gray. Oakley's making it fall out because she literally will, she jumped off the diving board yesterday. She's not, she's 22 months old. She saw the other kids doing it. She marched her little butt down there, climbed up. She, you know, she can't step up on it. She got to climb up on it walks out to the end and bails off. And, uh, yeah. that's just kind of, that's just kind of how she is. And, and, you know, they're born that way. Their case yeah. is a sweet, good boy and Oakley's wild as hell. And, and, uh, uh the other day, Paige was telling her not to touch the stove and she wasn't listening. So Paige hit her hand like that, hit it pretty hard, you know, kind of smack it said, Oakley, you can't touch the stove. And she turned around, looked at case and she went, oh well listen uh i appreciate your time we we've been working on this uh putting out a podcast and i just want you to know when we uh the gang here of four of us when we sat down and said who would kick this off we're we're using every walk of life athletes musicians comedians actors but we said when when we do this there's only one guy that can kick off a, a good podcast that i'm doing and that was you so uh, we appreciate it. I appreciate that, Flint, and uh, appreciate all you do for the for our sport and for the for the Western way of life and the Cowboys in general. And I was glad to be a part of it. You bet. Ty Murray, nine-time world champ, pro rodeo hall of famer. Thanks, buddy. We'll see you soon. Okay. Sounds good. All right.